This is The Purple Principle. I'm Robert Pease. And I'm Emily Corsetti. And Emily, we've been through a lot in the U.S. over just the past seemingly endless year or so, like a decade's worth of stuff crammed into one year. Oh, yes. First off, there was all that dissension over social distancing, shutdowns, and masks during the most lethal pandemic in a century. It's up to the task of not wearing a mask. Our new normal does not mean that we will sacrifice our freedoms for our safety. Get me liberty or get me death. Holding a presidential impeachment. As Speaker of the House, I solemnly and sadly open the debate on the impeachment of the President of the United States. Debating and denying election results. Our accusations of voter fraud, illegal votes. And all that was before things turned really ugly on January 6, 2021, right in our nation's capital. So now, another impeachment. For the second time in 13 months, we're meeting to discuss the impeachment of the President of the United States. When we began researching the Purple Principle a year ago, we knew these United States were partisan. Illegal votes, voter fraud. Not wearing a mask. This is a reckless impeachment. If these actions are not worthy of impeachment, then what is an impeachable offense? But we did not realize that they were this partisan. On this episode of The Purple Principle, we attempt to get a deeper understanding of this other plague of ours, the hyperpartisan plague. So today we're featuring some of the most important insights from the several dozen experts we've interviewed in this first season. And that is really necessary because understanding polarization is not a simple thing. There's a whole lot of variables and feedback loops. Let's start today with the Dean of Political Polarization, Dr. Keith Poole, who spent his career analyzing congressional floor votes all the way back to the first Congress in 1789. Beginning roughly around the late 1990s and into the 2000s, the parties started separating to the point now where it's not really liberal conservative, it's just um, it's devolved into pure hatred of the other party. And I worry about the stability of our institutions because of that. According to Dr. Poole's data, which is now available on votefew.com, the U.S. Congress in the past 20 years has been at its most partisan level in over 100 years, and possibly since the Civil War. But it's not a single issue that divides the country today, as slavery did around the Civil War. Today, it's not just issues that divide us, but actually identity. And that's tricky, because policy disagreements might be logically worked out, but identity agreements are deeply personal and emotional. Jason Altmaier, former three-term centrist member of the U.S. House, on how that played out once the COVID crisis struck. This is a, a great concern of mine as this national crisis has unfolded. I've been very concerned about this idea that it's got to be somebody else's fault. That's unfortunately very different than what it used to be in this country, where crises would bring people together. It would be the one unifying factor 
that was out there where, where people would put politics aside. It is exactly the opposite now. It only exacerbates the problem of partisanship. It highlights the divide of the country. And you are seeing it with COVID-19. Laura Sibelia, an independent legislator in the Vermont Assembly, feels this partisanship trickling down to the state level. I feel like it's growing and I feel like it's, you know, moving down. I've seen the governor called a rhino. I've seen other lawmakers called, you know, dinos for, you know, I don't even know if that's how you say it, but I presume it is, uh, for collaborating. I think my constituents are reacting at the federal level, and um, that is that it it ends up coming down. In the U.S. Congress and in one of our most civil state legislatures. Well, who has the upper hand is the partisans on both sides, the Republicans and the Democrats. We have seen a really an unprecedented attack on, on facts and knowledge. And Vermonters are not immune from that. How did we get to this very partisan point? That's a big question, which we also cover in our newsletter, The Purple Principle in Print. You can subscribe on our website, and there's more info at the end of this episode. But for present purposes, we need to focus on Emily's favorite subject, neuroscience. Hey, that's just normal. My brain's interested in other brains, as are all brains, whether they know it or not. So it was great to have two blue ribbon brain experts on the topic of polarization in season one. Jay Van Bavel of NYU and Abigail Marsh of Georgetown University. We found that conservatives were more dogmatic, but if you looked at the far left, Those people were pretty dogmatic too. Not as dogmatic as the far right, but more dogmatic than moderates. It used to be the case that, you know, people would be less comfortable having dinner with people of other races. And now people say they're less comfortable having dinner with people from different political backgrounds. Both emphasize that the roots of political disagreement are biological. Jay Van Bavel on the structure of the brain. So conservatives effectively had more gray matter volume density in their amygdala And liberals had more greater matter volume density in their anterior cingulate cortex. What it simply suggests is that there are differences in how our brains are wired that are correlated with our political preferences. Abigail Marsh on the function of the brain. Like a herd of muskox, when they believe they're being threatened by wolves, they cluster themselves together in a very tight way. Threat does that to really any social species. You cluster together with those who are like you in an attempt to ward off the threat. And both had interesting things to say about the indie brains of our Purple Principle listeners. So the independent brain, I would love to say that it's radically different, but what we find is the independent brain is pretty much just in the middle. The sort of person who's less likely to gravitate toward the extreme of either end of the political spectrum is more likely to be comfortable and able to grasp uh, cognitive complexity. But the problem remains, as the species were hardwired for tribalism and for that negative partisanship that demonizes the other side. Then add to that our two-party system. Terrible idea. Yeah, whose idea was that? But whoever it was, somehow in the U.S., unlike the vast majority of other countries, we've set up a zero-sum game, especially in the minds of our most tribal partisans, the politicians. Democratic. On the right. Democratic debate. Conservative. Democratic. Republican senator. Democrat from New York. Lead over the Democratic field. Republican presidential candidate. 
One of the most interesting things about taking a 360-degree view of polarization is when experts from different disciplines look at the problem and come up with really similar conclusions. Jay Van Bavel, neuroscientist at NYU, originally from Canada, talking about how our two-party system is more polarizing than Canada's multi-party system. The interesting thing about that multi-party system is if you decide that you don't like the Liberal Party, you could vote for the new Democratic Party, and yet you still don't have to vote for a party you dislike. Whereas in the United States, it's a zero-sum game of two teams. I suspect that's part of why two-party systems are more susceptible to partisanship and polarization. And U.S. political historian Jeffrey Cabaservice. You know, in a rational system, or at least a system that's more along the lines of the multipolar, multi-party systems of other countries, we would have at least four different parties, probably more like six. But that's not the system that we have. Dave Van Bavel on how confining political identities can be. Because if you've been a party member of the Democrats or Republicans for 10 or 20 years, for you to completely abandon that is deeply threatening to a lot of people. So there's lots of incentives that people have psychologically to just simply ignore contradictory information. Computer scientist Robert Elliott Smith on the effects of social media. Quantifying people is always something that has been not very far from intolerances and bigotries. And in many ways, uh, that's the reason I make the statement that now I believe algorithms are prejudice. A neuroscientist studying brain response, a computer scientist studying algorithms, but on the same wavelength. Our opinions would be so much more diverse if not for those polarizing forces. Liberals are a cluster over here and conservatives are a cluster over there. But in reality, it's actually a, a continuum And people fall all along that continuum. People aren't as simple as Democrats and Republicans that people's opinions about aren't that simple. People are not that simple, and they do lie on a continuum. Or they would without so many polarizing forces at work. And maybe that's the most hopeful point in our investigation so far. Andrew Gelman of Columbia University, one of the most respected statistical analysts of partisanship, speaks to that point. So the big picture is that voters tend to dislike the other party more than they like their own party. So a lot of the polarization is people feeling that the other party is too extreme, not that their party is quite in the right position. We're less polarized than you think, but we're more polarized than we used to be. The question then is, what is making us more polarized in recent time? To answer that, look no further than the nearest news feed. Again, Dr. Robert Elliott Smith, an expert on the artificial intelligence which drives those feeds. The situation right now is we have this algorithmically mediated media that's trying to place us into categories largely for purposes of uh, advertising. That, of course, feeds us our news. That aggravates our emotions. Cable news is another huge factor. Dr. Dominic Sasua of Colorado State has analyzed the transformation of cable content over time. What happened is that back in the late 70s, early 80s, if you were following the news, roughly a third of the time you would encounter like a reference to a politician or a quote from a politician. Now, fast forward to the mid-90s, we're now at 56%. Majority of content is now partisan. 
Fast forward to 2016, now it's two thirds, it's 67%. So now, essentially, it's not just people who are in the echo chambers who are exposed to hyperpartisanship, it's everybody that even residually follows the news. For example, Robert Elliott Smith on social media. So effectively, it's the worst kind of narrow casting. It's, uh, you know, the internet isn't broadcasting, it's narrow casting. Dominic Sisua on broadcast media. Now you have a lot of outlets out there and there's fierce competition. Polarizing social media. Facebook really does broadcast hate speech. There's no doubt about it. They do. Partisan cable news. There's just been a proliferation of opinion content. But it's also interesting how different experts in very different disciplines have really similar suggestions on how to vaccinate, metaphorically speaking, our polarization plague. Abigail Marsh, neuropsychologist and author of The Fear Factor, and Robert Elliott Smith, computer scientist and author of Rage Inside the Machine. Things are complicated. You don't always understand other people's interior lives that well. Somebody might believe something totally different from me, but they might have a reason that even if I don't agree with it, I would at least understand how they got there if I had a conversation with them. The further you get from face-to-face communication with another person, the more dangerous the communication becomes. And we all know this. And the reason is, is because there's a lot more to communication simply than symbolic communication through the written word or through the abbreviated written word in Twitter. And that's because human communication is extremely complex, as is all human interaction. Neuropsychologist, computer scientist, but on the same wavelength. We're animals. Like we really, the way that, you know, the people around us smell and sound and feel, I mean, those are all things that moderate our brain activity at a really primitive level. Rehumanize as much as possible your interactions. Open up your channels of communication to other people because you're a part of the way the network is structured. And no one knows the importance of face-to-face communication more than stand-up comedians. In safer times, they travel around the country, say provocative things, and entertain people of all political persuasions, such as our featured guest early in season one, Mike Kaplan. And I remember I was in a few towns, like within a few hours of Fairbanks, and I remember one seemed like, I don't know if they identified it as such, but it seemed like a like cowboy bar of a kind. It seemed like, and I remember at the time, I probably had a lot of jokes that were, you know, I had jokes about like being, let's say, pro-gay marriage. And I remember like a cowboy type man came up to me afterwards and he was like, uh, like said, probably said something like, I don't agree with everything that you, you say, but uh, thanks for coming and it was enjoyable. So Emily, let's try to sum this up. We're born with this innate social tendency to tribalize and that tribalism really comes to life in our zero-sum two-party political system. And we let loose a partisan media storm which polarized a whole lot of people into opposing camps. Once again, another police chase. It's a non-story, it's a non-story. Every time I get done with the seven day, you guys are like, We know all too well you can't please everyone. De fact, if you work in the news business. And that may seem bad enough, but wait, there's more. A lot more. You also have to factor in the structural issues of our elections. Charles Whelan, founder of Unite America, outlined this in our second episode, The Front Lines of Partisanship. Anyone who's been watching TV more than 15 years knows that's new. The rise of television news where you pick your ideology. 
the rise of social media, where not only are you hearing the echo chamber, but think about something like gerrymandering. Now, big data allows us to gerrymander better than we used to, which means more safe seats, which means the primaries matter more. They're more expensive races. Who do you get the money from? The people who are the most extreme. Every single force is pushing us apart. So when you meet someone who's really hyperpartisan, you have to hold all these things together in your mind. First, those innate tendencies and that negative partisanship. You know, you think like a herd of muskox when they believe they're being threatened by wolves, they cluster themselves together in a very tight way. The polarizing effects of a two-party system. In a rational system, we would have at least four different parties. The inflammatory role of not all media, but a whole bunch of it. Majority of content is now partisan. And those election distortions. Every single force is pushing us apart. It seems like a perfect storm, but it's one of our own creation. So the question then becomes, could we possibly undo it? And that, Emily, is my own personal bias in creating this show for primarily an audience of independence. So much of the country is mired in red or blue identities. That means independent citizens and voters and media may be the best and only hope. Okay, sure. Independent voters are a huge block of Americans. But are they engaged enough to do that? Some of our guests are not so sure. Like former Congressman Jason Altmaier. You are seeing great disgust in the country with the polarization that we see all around us. Some people have chosen to disengage from the political process and just not vote and not participate. That is clearly not the right answer. But the other problem is people have become disgusted and they've left the Democratic and the Republican Party and they've become independents. And now they've disenfranchised themselves in many states. They can't participate in primary elections. My own bias works a little differently, and maybe I'm just too hopeful. But moderates and people of both major parties are also concerned about partisanship. I'm thinking about Stephen Hawkins of the research group More in Common and their definition of the exhausted majority of Americans. Yes, yeah, so we identified four tribes that we describe as belonging to something called the exhausted majority, which is two thirds of Americans. What they shared was a sense of fatigue at American politics and a sense that their voices weren't necessarily reflected in the debates, in the political space and in the media. And I do think all of these organizations working to combat polarization will make a difference. I'd like to point to our episode on Alaska Ballot Measure 2 as a case in point. How are we going to provide Alaska voters with the most voice, the most choice and the most power? And we found that Open primaries and ranked choice voting and financial disclosure was that way. But Alaska may be a special case, with nonpartisans being about 60% of their voters. It won't be easy to do that in a lot of states. We will hear a lot more about that in season two of The Purple Principle as we visit states dealing with hyperpartisanship. But next episode will be part two of the season one finale, stemming the tide of polarization. And we'll revisit some of the awesome season one guests trying to do just that such as Trevor Potter, former chair of the Federal Election Commission and founder of the Campaign Legal Center, working to combat gerrymandering. We do think there are opportunities in a number of states to argue that a gerrymander, if that's what the legislature does, violates that state constitution. 
and John Opdyke of Open Primaries, working to fully franchise independent voters in primary elections. Politicians who get elected in open public primary systems are much better elected officials. They actually are incentivized to work with members of the other party. Candidates that get elected in these closed partisan primaries, they have absolutely no incentive to govern, to represent their constituents. Their job is to represent the 5 to 10% of partisan warriors that get them elected every two years in the primary. That's all they care about. It's not because they're evil people or stupid people. It's that's how the election system is set up. Please join us then. Share us on social media. Review us on Apple Music. And subscribe to our newsletter, The Purple Principle, in print via our website. It's a free summary of purplish events and issues around the country. And while subscribing, you can also leave us audio comments and suggestions at purpleprinciple.com. This is Robert Pease with Emily Cressetti for the Purple Principle team, Allison Byrne, producer, Kevin A. Klein, senior audio guru, Emily Holloway, senior researcher and fact-checker, Johnny Dowling, research associate. Our original music is composed and created by Ryan Adair Rooney.